Hi, everyone. I'm Jordan. I am a ministry associate here at Fifth, and I'm also a Master of Divinity student at Western Theological Seminary. Um, I'm going to apologize in advance. I might yawn, <laughs> and it's not because I'm not here, but I have a toddler who wakes up at about 4.30 every day, and I really undershot my caffeine in order to not be jittery. So <laughs> you win some, you lose some, right? Um, well, if you've been with us throughout the fall, you know that we've been working our way through Paul's letter to the Romans, and we'll be continuing on that after today. So if you hate this sermon, fear not. The season finale is like weeks away. A few weeks ago, Pastor John entered a section of the letter, a really difficult section, about the general human tendency to focus on the sins of others while dismissing our own. And then the following week, move more specifically to address good people, people who are moral or righteous. And then last week, the text focused even more specifically on the Jews, God's chosen people to whom God gave God's special revelation. In our context, that's us. We're the people of God. We have the gift of God's special revelation in scripture. And we are just as swamped in sin. We've fallen just as short of God's glory. And we are just as susceptible to condemn others in hypocrisy while ignoring the sins of ourselves. If you were here with us last week, you participated in a corporate act of confession, contrition, and repentance, which was pretty heavy. And now we arrive at the final blow where Paul says, hey, seriously, all of you, you are not righteous. The playing field is completely flat, completely level, because no one is righteous. No one. Jews who have been given the law are not more righteous than those without the law, because no one can measure up to the law. So let's listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying to us in the word. Our scripture this morning is from Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 20. It'll be behind me, but also in your pew Bible on page 913. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God 
before their eyes. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. This then is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jennifer. I wonder if any of you are familiar with the story of a man named Aaron Ralston who got stuck in a canyon in 2003. The movie 127 Hours depicts his story. Have any of you seen it? Ralston was an experienced outdoorsman who embarked on a solo canyoneering trip, that means like hiking into canyons, in southeastern Utah. He didn't tell anyone he was going. He took no phone, no walkie-talkie, no radio, but he did have a digital camera and a multi-tool, which is kind of like a Swiss army knife with all kinds of goodies on it. I'll spare you the details for any of us who get squeamish, myself included. But when Ralston was descending into Blue John Canyon, an 800-pound boulder came loose and pinned his right hand against the canyon wall. He recorded video messages on his digital camera and carved his identifying information into the wall next to him, assuming that he would die there. He was trapped in that canyon for just over five days, 127 hours to be exact, which is where the movie gets its title. Before he managed to escape, by amputating his own arm with a two-inch blade on his multi-tool. I'm feeling a little lightheaded. <laughs> How about you? <laughs> this happened in 2003, and despite the severe dehydration, the blood loss, the risk of infection, all those things, Aaron Ralston is still alive today, albeit living without one of his arms. Aaron's predicament is our predicament. His story is a helpful, albeit grim, metaphor to frame our exploration of this scripture because the truth is that this scripture is grim. It's not hard to accept the reality of evil by looking out into the world. Most people on this planet would agree there's some dark wickedness at play out there. But in this letter to the Romans, Paul is not asking us to look out into the world to understand the reign of sin. Paul is asking us to look in the mirror. No one is righteous. This is the canyon. We're all in it. It's an inescapable fact. We are human beings prone to wander. It doesn't matter how many good things we do or how bad someone else seems by comparison, there is no one righteous. Not even one. And no one will be called righteous in God's sight under the works of the law. We're all in this canyon together and we're all pinned down without so much as a multi-tool. It's what the theologian Karl Barth calls the narrow gorge. 
He says, neither forwards nor backwards can we escape from this narrow gorge. There is therefore no alternative but for us to remain under this indictment. And only the one who remains here without making any attempt to escape, even by spinning the sophistries of human logic, is able to praise God in his faithfulness. We are now several weeks into Paul's exhortation on sin to the Romans, which really is an exhortation on sin to us. And it's kind of exhausting, isn't it? Like, enough is enough, we get it. It's bleak, we do bad things. We sometimes even celebrate when other people do bad things. We judge others unfairly. We have a false sense of our own morality, we get it. I understand if that's your vantage point right now. I get that you're feeling a little beat down. But I want to invite us to stay in this gorge a little longer. Because without coming to full terms with the bad news, we will never open ourselves up fully to the gift of grace that is the really, really, really good news. We have to understand how bad the bad news is in order to understand how good the good news is. If you are stuck in a gorge, pinned under a rock, but you don't really grasp the gorge and the rock, you will waste your life attempting to lift a boulder that is immeasurably heavy or walk around a wall that is endlessly long or scale a cliff that is impossibly high. So we're all gonna sit in this gorge together for a little bit. Can we do that? Without making any attempt to escape? As Bart says, without trying to reason with it or uh, defeat it with our mental gymnastics? Can we take a deep breath together in, out? It's uncomfortable. Don't scramble out. There is good news coming, I promise, but we aren't gonna rush through this. There is no Easter morning without three days in the tomb. So let's close our eyes for a minute. Let's touch the rough, cold stone that's flanking us. Let's gaze up the cliff at that sliver of sky a mile up and let's feel the weight of that boulder of sin against our limbs, pinning us down. Let's stop struggling against everything for a moment and just sit in our own guilt and in our own powerlessness against it. And now open your eyes and look around because unlike Aaron Ralston, We've got company in each other. Well, in fact, in all of humanity. In his poem, Revelation Must Be Terrible, David White says, being far from home is hard, but you know, at least we are exiled together. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who does good, not even one. 
have turned away. All are in the gorge. And only once we've made peace with our situation in this narrow gorge, only then can we truly praise God and God's faithfulness. The bad news illuminates the good news. So let's dive into the bad news. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. In the way of peace, they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This right here is total depravity. Paul is using a literary device called a katina, where he strings together a commentary, chaining different links from the Hebrew Bible. So his Jewish readers would likely know these by heart. And this might be the first time they're hearing them all compacted together. It's kind of a, it's kind of a packy punch, or punch, packy, punchy pack. <laughs> Do you notice how he moves through the body? Our throats reveal death. Our tongues spew deceit. Our mouths hold curses. Our lips bear poison. Our feet tread violent steps, leaving misery in our paths. And our eyes refuse to be set on the fear of God. Every part of our being is capable of sowing pain, denying God. Now you might be saying, hey, that is not me. I'm not that bad. I don't do those things. This is hyperbolic, it's unfair, I don't like it. I get it, I'm with you. I'm feeling all those feelings. But sin is equal in the eyes of God. We're all under that indictment. Now that doesn't mean that every sin behavior has equal impact on other people or equal consequences within the world. But this is not the sin Olympics. We don't each get a score. <laughs> this is what it means for the playing field to be level. We are all born into sin with equal capacity for destructive thoughts and destructive behavior, with equal deficiency in our ability to think beautiful thoughts and engage in uplifting behavior aside from the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. No one has an advantage over anyone else. Left to our own devices, there is no hope. You cannot get out of a gorge until you come to terms with the gorge. Otherwise, you'll just keep driving yourself into a wall. So if we all inevitably fall short, what's the point of the law? Paul writes that under the law, every mouth is silenced and the whole world is held accountable. 
He doesn't mean that God shuts us up. Paul it means that under the law, we're confronted as if on trial. And when faced with the stack of evidence mounted against us, we can make no excuse for ourselves. Words fail us because words are pointless. We have no defense. So why would God present us with a standard that we will never be able to live up to? It is impossible to perfectly follow the law. In the tech world, this is called a feature, not a bug. It's not a design flaw on God's part that the law is unfollowable. But it's also not a cruel joke. It's not as if God set Israel up to fail because God is vindictive or capricious. The law serves to expose our inadequacy rather than serving as the goal to which we should strive. Paul says, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Our inability to measure up is precisely the mechanism that exposes the condition of our hearts to ourselves. We've missed the point if we think that God left us trapped within an impossible standard. The law is not the standard. The glory of God is the standard. In his commentary on Romans, John Stott notes that the reason the law cannot justify sinners is precisely that its function is to expose and to condemn their sin. And until the law has done its work of exposing and condemning our sin, we are not ready to hear the gospel of justification. Being under the law does not absolve us of anything. It serves to reveal how much we need absolution from outside of ourselves. The law says to us, you think your works can save you? You think following all the rules will save you. Okay, try. Try to follow the rules. Try to do the right thing. Try to be good all the time. You can't. You won't be able to. So if that's not going to work, what is? Since the Garden of Eden, we have been trying to be God but we are not God. You are not God. I am not God. We will never measure up to perfection. How do we get out of the predicament of our own sin if that very predicament makes the so-called solution, the law, inaccessible? We cannot save ourselves. By the way, you know by now that it's Reformation Day, which marks Martin Luther's 99 theses that he nailed on the church. This event catalyzed the Protestant Reformation. It's kind of the reason why we're here the way that we are. This passage of scripture speaks to where those five solas came through, came from. 
by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to scripture alone, glory to God alone. It's the great leveling of the playing field. No one anywhere is better than anyone for any reason. So we cannot in any way, shape, or form rely on our own capabilities to be saved. Nor can we boast in our own goodness. This has huge implications, by the way, for issues of justice and equity, which is for another sermon. But I want you to understand just how radical this concept is. It's so radical that it literally launched the formation of a second branch of the Christian faith that we call Protestantism because Luther believed it mattered that much. Luther sat in the gorge. He got it. He made peace with it. If I can't save myself, then I'm only saved through grace. If my nature is corrupt, then I am not in a position to receive any of the glory. Sin has corrupted our human nature, but it doesn't define our human nature because our nature was created in the image of God with God's stamp of very goodness upon us. There can be a huge misconception surrounding the doctrine of total depravity. If you're not familiar with this term, total depravity is a theological concept. It's commonly present in uh, reform circles of Christianity, which speaks to our understanding of the way that sin affects human beings. And sometimes people interpret total depravity to mean wicked to the core, incapable of anything good. Friends, to claim this is to deny the image of God in us. God made us very good. Sin did not negate that. Total depravity means that everything about our nature is affected by sin, but it does not mean that we're incapable of goodness. Totally depraved means that depravity touches every part of us. It does not mean that every part of us is absolutely depraved. Properly understood, this should not drive us to self-loathing as if we're worthless, nor to nihilism, which says, well, nothing matters because it's all gonna be rotten anyway. The doctrine of total depravity should lead us to a place of total desperation for help. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one righteous, not even one? That makes me feel pretty desperate. So where is the grace here? Romans mirrors the broader arc of the Bible. Once we leave Eden, we spend a lot of time wading through despair, bondage, failure, evil before Jesus is born. Paul spends a long time in this narrow gorge because the story of God's people spends a long time in the gorge and because we need to get really honest about our situation. This arc, this pattern of plot points is echoed in so much of our own tradition. Have any of you heard sin, salvation, service, or guilt, grace, gratitude? 
It's how a lot of people characterize the Heidelberg Catechism, which is a teaching tool for spiritual formation in a lot of traditions and is a confession even in the Reformed Church in America, which is the denomination that Fifth is a part of. Romans chapter three locates us squarely in the sin, guilt, first act of the story. The story does not end here. Next week's passage begins with the word, but. There's always a turn in scripture. So here's the preview of coming attractions. God does not leave us in our distress. God does not leave us alone to contend with the rubble of our own destructive behavior. In fact, I'll do you one better. God does not just toss us a multi-tool so that we can wrench ourselves out, emerging alive, but not intact. That's the claim of many other religions. Here are some tools by which you can save yourself. If you've been around for John's previous sermons in this series, you'll be familiar with the following definition of righteousness. That it means to be made perfectly aligned as if a broken arm is being set by an orthopedic specialist. There is a way out of the gorge. And it's not a method or a tool. It's not a set of shared beliefs or an institution. It's a person. The way out is rooted in the historical reality that God descended into the narrow gorge to be with us by entering the world as a person, experiencing all the heartache and trauma and temptation that comes with humanity, allowing himself to be overtaken by the gorge on the cross and then achieving victory over it in his resurrection. You may have also heard John say that religion might make people better, but the gospel makes people new. Jesus lifts that boulder that's pinning us down. Jesus carries us out. And Jesus surpasses any orthopedic specialist, not by setting the arm, but by making it as if it was never broken in the first place. There is only one way out of the gorge, and it's Christ who has entered the gorge with us and made the way for us to leave with him. Jesus offers us a way out of the gorge if we follow him, out of the trouble in which we find ourselves. And when he comes again in glory, Jesus will fully erase all the damage from that trouble. He doesn't just rescue us from further trouble. He heals us from all the trouble that we've already endured and all the trouble we've created for other people. He makes the broken bones unbroken. When his kingdom is fully consummate, in the popular words of J.R.R. Tolkien, everything sad will come untrue. And when we clear that cliff face and rise over the ledge into the wide open country of salvation, he does not just set us on our way business as usual. Repent, believe, 
he says to us. Change your minds, change your lives. Our lives, once we emerge from that gorge, cannot look the way they looked when we were in it. Allow the total darkness of the bad news and the saving light of Christ call you into joyful obedience and participation in the kingdom of God. After Jesus gave a particularly challenging teaching to a crowd, a number of his followers departed because it was just gonna be too hard to keep going with him if what he said was true. So Jesus turned to his 12 disciples. You don't wanna leave too, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus is not just offering a philosophy or an ideology of salvation. Jesus has offered himself as salvation. The universal reign of sin is a bitter pill to swallow. I know. But there is a way out. There is one way out. To whom shall we go if not to Jesus? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. God, we turn our eyes to you and you alone. From where else would our help come from? By your word and your spirit, by your body and your blood, would you pull us out? We ask you to open our hearts to receive your free gift of liberation from the bondage of sin. And we ask that you would change our minds and change our lives in accordance with the riches of your righteousness. In Christ's name, amen.